Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading Stella and the Spy, The Romance of a Spring Holiday, by Margaret Douglas, which was first published in The People's Friend in June 1917. It has a whiff of the Enid Blyton about it, this one, and it's read for you by Friend Production Editor Judy Struth. Over to Judy. The welcome May sunshine beat hotly down on the waves as they lapped the golden sands and gently rocked the small rowing boat, which lay idly tossing on the placid waters of Loch Etive. Stella Wingate sat up and smoothed her ruffled hair. Gracious, she exclaimed sleepily, consulting her wristwatch. Why didn't you wake me, Roddy? Roderick Dew wagged his stump of a tail apologetically and sat expectantly with ears cocked, watching his mistress deftly plying the oars while the boat carried them smoothly to the shore. Jumping out and pulling the Sheila into a sandy cove, the girl raced along the beach, accompanied by her excited little companion, who made the echoes ring with his joyous barks as he careered madly up the steps of the picturesque, ivy-coloured hotel. An elderly gentleman stood at the entrance, surveying the scene through a pair of opera glasses. Oh, Dad! cried Stella's fresh young voice breathlessly. I'm awfully sorry for being late. I fell sound asleep in the boat. Have you had lunch, dear? Mr Wingate lowered the glasses and gazed moodily at his daughter's glowing face. Lunch, he echoed querulously. How could I lunch with you away for hours in that cockle shell which might turn upside down at any moment and send you to a watery grave? I tried to write some letters, but there's a woman staying here with an appalling tongue. She talked for two hours and more about her son in the trenches and what sort of scones he likes and the recipe for his favourite shortbread and how his life was saved by a cocoa tin in his breast pocket. Stella laughed softly. Poor old dad, she exclaimed, linking her arm in his. Come and have something to eat. I'm starving and I'm sure you're hungry too. Well, yes, he admitted as they entered the coffee room. I had a little fruit and some biscuits, but but I was too anxious to take any lunch. Sitting down at a small table near the window, they leisurely enjoyed the tempting repast while Roderick Dew, who had won the affections of the cook, trotted off to the lower regions to enjoy his dinner, repaying the friendly attentions he received there by dying for his country, with one eye closed and the other watching the mutton bones. What a glorious view, observed Stella dreamily. I never get tired of looking at the falls of Laura. Aren't they beautiful, Dad? Try this potato salad, Stella, returned her father feelingly, 
The cold ham is finer than anything we ever get at home. Waiter, he went on loudly, addressing a man strolling past the table. Fetch me the pickles, please. Dad, whispered Stella, crimson to her temples. You've made a mistake. There aren't any waiters here. Eh? Ah, thank you, returned Mr Wingate to the buxom waitress who had supplied the pickles and continued his meal in blissful ignorance of his daughter's embarrassment. Stella directed an apologetic glance at the fair-haired young man who had dropped into a chair at the adjoining table. With a merry twinkle in his clear blue eyes, he leaned forward and remarked with boyish frankness, I'm not a bit offended. As a matter of fact, I am a sort of waiter, you know, and have been for years. I hope the pickles are satisfactory. Mr Wingate heard the polite inquiry and beamed on the smiling stranger. Glorious weather, sir, he observed genially. My daughter and I are walking to Oban this afternoon. Beautiful town, Oban. Its sunsets are magnificent, returned the young man emphatically. Sunsets, echoed Mr Wingate absently. Wasn't it Oban where we bought those delicious mealy puddings, Stella? Just like homemade ones, you know, sir. You should try them next time you're there. We send them to my son in France every week, and he... I saw you sketching this morning, broke in Stella hastily. There are some lovely bits near the falls. The stranger flushed with obvious discomfiture. Drawing out his handkerchief, he started coughing violently when something fell to the floor with a hard metallic sound. Stooping swiftly, he picked up the small black object and strode hurriedly from the room. But not before Stella had recognised the now familiar Iron Cross of Germany. I can't walk another step, announced Mr Wingate emphatically, wiping his heated brow. We've walked at least ten miles already. Oh no, Dad, protested Stella. Connell Ferry's only about four miles from Oban, and we're almost there. We won't be there today, answered her parent firmly, as he sat by the roadside in his shirt sleeves and fanned himself with his hat. I think I can say with truth that I'm not a selfish man. Had I been so... I would never have consented, at my age, to walk 15 miles in blazing sunshine because you wanted to buy Rob Roy ties and Highland souvenirs at the Tartan Warehouse. But, Daddy, you can't stay here, began Stella helplessly. Neither can I go on, returned Mr Wingate pathetically. I have no wish to expire on a lonely country road. I want to die in my bed like a Christian. A labourer came plodding into sight with a large hammer on his shoulder. Ah, good day, my friend. How many miles are we from Oban? inquired Mr Wingate suavely. The aged native shifted the hammer onto his other shoulder and stood stock still in the middle of the dusty road, gazing meditatively at his questioner. Did you know be known that Oban's just over that hillock? And past the white farmhouse, sir, he queried, waving a grimy hand vaguely in the air. 
Thanks, said Mr. Wingate resignedly. Your lucid directions, my dear sir, would be most valuable, I have no doubt, if I had the slightest idea of what you're talking about. Here's a sixpence, friend. For the war fund, of course. Mumbling fervent thanks, the old man ambled down the hill, marvelling afresh at the strange ways of the Sathenach. Do get up, Dad, pleaded Stella. Here's a motor coming. Let it come, declared the exhausted pedestrian majestically. There is nothing, I hope, to shock anyone's tender susceptibilities in the spectacle of a retired ironmonger resting by the wayside. The navy car whirled smoothly past the little group, then came to a sudden stop as the driver jumped out and approached Stella. Can I help you in any way? he inquired politely. Have you met with an accident? Well, not exactly, returned Mr Wingate candidly. I've been walking for hours and... My father is not strong and the walk from Connell has upset him, interrupted Stella. Capsized, I think, expresses the situation better, suggested Mr Wingate surveying his outstretched limbs and scattered wardrobe with the air of a martyr. I will be delighted to drive you into Oban, said the motorist courteously. There's plenty of room in the car. Thanks, returned Mr Wingate promptly. Come along, Stella, don't keep the gentleman waiting. Where's my hat? Help me into my coat. Carry my gloves, my dear. With a nimbleness surprising in one so exhausted, he hurried Stella into the waiting car where a tall man stood patiently at the open door. You know my friend, Mr Brown, I think, said the driver briefly, taking his seat at the wheel. This is an unexpected pleasure, murmured Mr Brown softly, helping father and daughter into the comfortable car. Your face seems familiar, remarked Mr Wingate doubtfully, as the car moved off. I've surely met you before. I've been staying at your hotel for the last month, Mr Brown reminded him frankly. Owing to a timidity inherited from my grandmother, I couldn't summon up the courage to speak to you and your daughter till you kindly broke the ice with the pickles today. Broke the ice with the pickles? gasped Mr Wingate in blank bewilderment. Dad never recognises people, explained Stella shyly. No, asserted the gentleman. I have no interest in my fellow creatures, Mr Brown. I wish them well, of course, Mr Wingate continued loftily, but my whole existence is bound up in my... Exactly, murmured Mr Brown sympathetically, looking at the vision of girlish loveliness who had accompanied his thoughts exclusively since his first glimpse of her on a balmy April morning. My liver, said Mr Wingate solemnly. Life, to me, is one endless chain of suffering, one vast round of self-denial and and pill-boxes, sir. I think we should get out here, interposed Stella, as the car turned into the Oban Esplanade. We usually have tea in this white hotel facing the bay. The car stopped at the big white gate, which led to the palatial-looking hotel. We'll motor you home, sir said Mr Brown respectfully. The car will pick you up at six o'clock if that will suit. 
admirably, agreed Mr. Wingate. But it's really too good of you and Mr. Uh... Mr. Bob Dalrymple, observed Mr. Brown, introducing his friend hastily. It's a pleasure, I assure you, sir. Adieu till six o'clock. The car sped along the broad esplanade in the direction of Ganavan Sands, while Stella and her father entered the hotel and, ordering tea, sat down at the lounge windows to feast their eyes on the magnificent panorama of picturesque scenery which attracts visitors from all parts of the world. Here's tea, Stella, said her father fussily. Come, my dear, you know how done up I am. After tea, Mr. Wingate produced his purse. Here's 30 shillings, he said generously. Go and buy impossible socks and tinned potatoes for Bertie. It's a blessing he hasn't his poor father's liver. But aren't you coming too, Dad? No, I'll rest here a while. That's the best of the West Highland hotels in May. They're all empty and you can do as you like. I'll have 40 winks in this deck chair. He consulted his watch. It's four o'clock. The motor's to meet us at six. Run away, child, and enjoy yourself. Which means, of course, come back with an empty purse. After I'm rested, I'll go to the chemist and get in a fresh supply of these pills. Stella set out briskly for her shopping. Returning a couple of hours later with an armful of parcels, she perceived Mr Brown and his friend sitting on a seat in front of the esplanade while the car stood at the hotel entrance. The men were absorbed in conversation and the evening breeze carried Mr Dalrymple's protesting tones directly to her ears. You're a bally fool, Carl, he was saying warmly. I can't see why you want to hoodwink the girl. It's a risky game. You're sure to be found out, you know. Your sketchbook alone would give the show away, you old duffer. Stella's senses reeled. The incident of the Iron Cross flashed into her mind with startling vividness. A German spy, she thought distractedly. Oh, what shall I do? The sight of the motor standing motionless gave her excited brain the answer. Opening the door silently, she stepped in and groped wildly among the rugs and wraps until she found the affable Mr Brown's sketchbook. It seems mean, she reflected, wrapping it up hastily in her raincoat. I've been dying to do something for my country, but I never thought of anything like this. Glancing guiltily over her shoulder, she ran into the hotel and found her father fuming in the hall. What a time you've been, he exclaimed peevishly. You know I can't stand unpunctuality. We'll be late for dinner, and nothing upsets my digestion like being put off my proper meal hours. Dear, dear, where's the car and that obliging Mr Brown? Mr Wingate hurried down the drive, followed by Stella, with the raincoat in deceitful folds over her arm. Mr Dalrymple was starting the engine, while Mr Brown paced impatiently to and fro. Here you are, at last he said reproachfully, helping Stella in after her father was settled to his satisfaction. It's nearly seven o'clock. I'm sorry, she murmured uneasily. You look tired, said Mr Brown solicitously, as she leaned back and closed her eyes. 
Her face looked fragile in its pallor. Try one of Perridge's pills, Stella, advised Mr. Wingate. Stop at the first house, Bob, directed Mr. Brown through the speaking tube. Let her stop, for heaven's sake. Miss Wingate is faint. The car tore along the deserted country road, raising clouds of dust in its reckless career. Rouse up, my love. You've never fainted before. Why begin now when we're miles from anywhere? Try a pellet, observed Mr. Wingate, as the car stopped with a jerk and Mr. Brown got hurriedly out and knocked lustily at the door of a lonely cottage. What a particularly clumsy young idiot, complained Mr. Wingate testily. He's knocked the box out of my hand, and all those confounded fowls are pecking up the pellets. The incensed gentleman jumped out and waved his umbrella at the enterprising hens, who were evidently enjoying Perridge's pellets for pale people. Better? queried Mr. Brown anxiously, holding out a tumbler of water. The lady evidently thinks we were smitten with her cabbage patch. She offered me a couple of cabbages and some leeks before Bob came to the rescue, with a mixture of double Dutch and Esperanto, a more unholy row I've never listened to. Stella smiled faintly as she drank the cool, refreshing draught. I'm sorry for being so troublesome, she murmured, avoiding Mr. Brown's anxious eyes. Think of my sufferings, my love, said Mr. Wingate impressively. Remember those weeks I lay helpless, getting nothing but toast and water, my dear. I'm all right now, Daddy, said Stella repentantly, as the car drove off, leaving Mrs. Ian MacDougall gazing with incredulous joy at the half-crown reposing in the empty glass. If he knew what I've got hidden in my raincoat, thought Stella with a sudden sense of fear. Mr. Brown wondered at the flush of crimson that overspread the fair, sensitive face. Let me take your wrap, Miss Wingate, he suggested. Oh, no thank you, Mr. Brown, said Stella, clutching the raincoat tightly, a look of horror in her big blue eyes. Mr. Brown wondered what her scared look meant, and had not solved the problem when the car drew up at the Etive Arms. Running up the steps with her precious burden, she hurried to her room and locked the door after a rapturous greeting from Roderick Dew, who had been at a picnic with a family of children staying in the hotel, to whom he was devotedly attached. Sinking down on her bed, her heart pounding with excitement, Stella opened the spy's sketchbook with shaking fingers. Oh, she gasped. Roderick Dew whined sympathetically as the patriotic amateur lady detective burst into a storm of tears. I left my cigar case in the car. Excuse me a moment while I go round to the garage, said Mr Brown after dinner. Certainly, said Mr Wingate blandly, sipping his black coffee with evident enjoyment. I expect my daughter will join us in a few minutes. This coffee would do her good, I'm sure. Mr Brown walked rapidly round the side of the hotel and noticed with surprise that the garage door was slightly open. That ass Bob's forgotten to shut it, he muttered irritably, stepping softly inside. A slight rustling sound caught his ear. Who's there? he demanded sharply, peering into the gloom. Miss Wingate? 
he exclaimed blankly. What are you doing here? Stella raised her white face to his. I was putting back your sketchbook, she answered bravely. A flush mounted to his brow. I don't understand, he said slowly. I heard you and your friend talking, she said desperately. You remember, you dropped an iron cross out of your pocket at lunch and you thought I was a spy and sketching prohibited areas and so on. I see, said Mr Brown coldly. I beg your pardon, Mr Carroll, please forgive me, she said in a frightened little voice. How was I to know you were Raymond Carroll, the artist who got hurt in an air fight and won the VC? Why did you say your name was Mr Brown? Because, because I was sick of being lionised by everyone, he rejoined and added bitterly, I find it hard to be hailed as a hero. To be taken as a spy is a new experience. There was silence in the dim garage, broken by the sound of a childish sob. Stella, exclaimed Mr Carroll impetuously, do you want to drive me mad? Didn't these sketches tell you that I love you? As you turned over each page and saw your own adorable face looking at you, what did you think? That the report in the papers about you was all wrong, returned Stella evasively. What report? He returned masterfully. The paragraph saying that the famous airman, Raymond Carroll, had lost his nerve, said Stella mischievously. Why do you carry about a horrid iron cross and what made you, made you say you were a waiter? A chap in the artillery sent me the fool thing for a mascot. And no one can deny I'm a waiter, explained the culprit daringly. Why, you're the girl I've been waiting for for years. With this ardent declaration, Mr Carroll drew Stella into his arms. The door opened gently and Mr Wingate entered. Switching on the light, he gazed open-mouthed at the absorbed couple. What madness is this? he demanded hoarsely. Daddy, cried the blushing Stella, endeavouring to escape. Mr Carroll kept a firm grip of his frightened sweetheart. It's all right, sir, he assured the wrathful father buoyantly. We're engaged. With your permission, of course, he added tactfully. Mr Wingate glared at the audacious young man. My daughter's not going to throw herself away on a shirker, he announced imperatively. Get into the army, sir. Follow Carol the VC's example. He didn't spend his time philandering, sir. That's the sort of son-in-law I want. A man who's not afraid to risk death for the honour of his country. Thank you, said Mr Carroll modestly, blushing like a schoolboy. Eh? queried Mr Wingate blankly. You see, explained the hero ungrammatically, that's me. What? cried the befogged gentleman. Daddy, faltered Stella happily, this is him. Who? thundered Mr Wingate. Raymond Carroll, said Stella proudly. My Raymond, Daddy.
Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Odd Fellows can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Odd Fellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Before the break, you heard Stella and the Spy by Margaret Douglas, which was first published in The People's Friend in June 1917. That story was read for us by friend production editor Judy, who joins me now. Hello, Judy. Hello. I'm also joined by Marion from the Friend Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. And David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi there. So, what did we think of Stella and her spy? The sensible place to start would be the the context of the story. It was published in 1917, so obviously the First World War was still raging. I guess fear of spies would have been a thing. I had a quick look. I did some research because I wanted to be prepared for this one, unlike all the others. <laughs> there, there were instances of um, sort of spy hysteria where people were frightened that folk who spoke in a funny accent may have been German spies. What do we think of Stella's patriotic impulses to do something for her country? Do we believe that this is a thing that would have motivated her to go raking around, or is she just nosy? So quite possibly, I think. I mean, in, in a lot of sort of comics and things around that time, that was a, a big theme, and it was like an adventure almost. Whether or not you know, a, per- a, a real person would have gone and done that. I don't know, but for, I think for a story theme, I think it's it seems like it's it's quite a a plausible thing for her to have done. It does sound a bit like something that that might have happened in, say, an Enid Blyton novel. Exactly. Yeah. You certainly see this kind of behaviour in the Second World War comics. Obviously, the First World War comics at this point, well, there weren't. Well, certainly from our stable, there weren't any comics at this period. It's a bit late, but I mean, it struck me more like a comedy of errors. But yeah, she, she, she's trying to do the right thing, but obviously it's, it's comedy of errors and got the wrong end of the stick. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the First World War stories that the People's Friend did publish, there's an awful lot of women doing the daring do stuff. You know, you, you've got lady bus drivers and you've got women having adventures for the first time, really. And it's kind of of a piece with that. And in complete kind of contrast to her father, who is an absolute imbecile. (laughs) Oh, her father's a hoot. (laughs) Yeah, I thought he was quite funny. You needed his grounded kind of contrast to the rest of everything else that's going on in the story, I think. You needed that kind of bluntness. And he's an ironmonger. Um, so, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a worker man, you know, he's <laughs> obviously done quite well for himself because he splashes the cash a lot in this, I noticed. He does. Um, yes, he does. His 30 shillings go shopping. It's like, yeah, I'd take that. <laughs> <laughs> and they've been in the hotel for a month. 
I know. That's quite a holiday for a retired ironmonger from England, in fact, to come up to Oban and throw money around at the, uh, literally throw money at the locals at one stage. He's a spy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he's the spy. That would be the twist in the tale, wouldn't it? (laughs) He's made a load of money from munitions supplying iron. (laughs) Yeah, the black marketeer. The the sting in the story is that labourer with the hammer opens his hand and the coin's a German one. (laughs) 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 That would have been great, actually. (laughs) I like the dog as well. Uh, Roderick. Roderick, yes. I I was intrigued because that's a very specific name to give a dog. It's a very specific Gaelic name to give a dog when they're English. Yeah. But he he must be a Scotty because, I mean, Roderick, too, that's little black Roderick so yeah I mean he he was kind of like a little comic foil I felt and I, I really like Roderick um and when he did I, I was wondering because when I when I listened to the story for a second time I couldn't remember if he appeared again at the end of the story but I think he, he does put in another appearance so he doesn't kind of just fizzle out when they all go off into the town center I was wondering where he'd got to at that point he's down in the kitchen looking at the bones <laughs> <laughs> he was in the and then he been for a picnic with a family who were very fond of him as well. So he had a while of a time while they were off having adventures. Well, if he was a Scotty, you couldn't take him on like a seven-mile walk or something. <laughs> you just end up carrying him. Um, I, I can refute that, speaking as one who owns a Cairn Terrier. <laughs> you could take him on a seven-mile walk three times a day. <laughs> That's a very energetic dog you have. Yes, it is. What confused me about this story at the beginning was I wasn't sure how old Stella was. Yeah. Because they refer to her as a girl and she's out on a boat and she's got a pet dog with her. And at first I thought she was maybe 14, 15 kind of age, you know, when you're allowed to go off and do things without mum and dad breathing down your neck. It really did have Enid Blyton vibes, didn't it? It did. Yeah. Well before Enid Blyton. Because it bothered me a little bit, certainly when you get to the end of the story. I thought, hold on, she's not old enough for proposals and marriage, is she? And it's, yeah, I got all very confused. <laughs> and it was less a proposal and more a kind of claiming of ownership. <laughs> oh, he basically kind of got her in a headlock and said, you're not going, you're mine now. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I thought it's like, this, this is a man that needs to learn about consent. <laughs> Wouldn't pass muster these days. Absolutely not. Yeah, well, she didn't seem to get much of a say in it. It was just like he decided it was happening. I mean, he never made a proposal. He kind of said, oh, she's mine now. And then to dad said, yeah, with your permission. And it's like at no point did she seem to get a say in this. That's all. That's what happens if you have a book of sketches. <laughs> is, is that the knack? Is that is that how we do it? <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. I've absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, yeah, it's, I was I was impressed with my research. That's why I was going to say um, Roderick Dew, alongside being a pub in Glasgow, is also a character in a poem by Walter Scott called "The Lady of the Lake." Ah, there you go. That's where they got it. Yeah, there you go. The poem itself is about love and war, which is, I guess, useful themes for this story, but. It also apparently inspired the Highland Revival, like a, a reimagining of romanticism in Scottish literature, which again feeds into the the themes. If you can, if you can call it love, being bedazzled by a book of sketches. <laughs> um, so it, I think naming the dog that and having the dog appear quite so early in the story is setting up the theme. Yes, I would agree with that. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, because they would have known the readers would have known. They're Scott probably much more than we would today. So they'd have picked up on it in a way that 
most of us haven't. And maybe the title is a bit of a clue as well. Yeah. You know, the romance of a spring holiday. So romance in that kind of 19th, well, that Scott way of what romance was, of um, a getaway, a bit of a fanciful thing, if fanciful is the right word. Yeah, like the romantics, like the, the, the sort of romantic poets in the Victorian days, the, the romance of nature, as well as just playing on the other sense of romance. Yeah, the scenery being sort of all important to how the characters are interacting with one another as well. Yeah, except for Dad, who doesn't seem to like the scenery or <laughs> anything that's not food or liver pills, basically. Yeah, <laughs> he is John Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> he, oh, it, it was so funny. What was the bit where she said, she's admiring the scenery. Oh, what a glorious view, she says. And then he says, try this potato salad, Stella. <laughs> 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 that just made me laugh. I did enjoy... Um, Perridge's pills for pale people. Yes. Well, that, made, that was brilliant because when you look at the old volumes, all those adverts, I can't remember who they are, but the pink pills for pale people, they keep cropping up in that period. So I think the writer's obviously picking up on that and having a little joke with the readers and the people's friend. I did go and have a look at the issue for this one. And um, the adverts there are things like Beecham's pills and um, a think it was this one i can't remember and a cracking advert for if you want to make your wife happy buy her this mop (laughs) 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 but yeah that that, those kind of like health pills before kind of regulation of pharmaceuticals were pretty common in the magazines of this period so very of the moment um i mean he didn't put in that he got them from the people's friend you know so that would have been too on the nose yeah 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 maybe been a bit a bit unsubtle maybe but the readers would have definitely recognized the pink pills for pale people because they were in so often i wonder what effect they have on chickens i was just wondering that (laughs) has he gone and poisoned all that women's chickens i'm sure they feel the chickens full of pep (laughs) well they kind of go from that into roadrunner (laughs) yes (laughs) No one wants pepless chicken. (laughs) The other thing I noticed when I went and looked at it, um, I mean, I mentioned about the fact that I wasn't 100% sure how old she was. And then when I went and looked at the the, the story in the actual magazine, it's a a whole page and it goes over onto the next page as well. But on the top left-hand corner of the first page, there is an illustration of the final scene when they're in the garage with the car and he is kind of holding on to her and he's got his sketchbook under his arm and everything. You get a sense of her age on that image. So seeing it at the original source kind of adds something. Um, Not that Judy's um, recording wasn't beautiful and wonderful, Uh but, you know, (laughs) the illustration kind of if I'd have seen that first before listening to the recording, it would have been I'd have had a different experience. Yeah, you would have been confused about her age. Still think it's creepy, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, her dad is retired as well, so unless he married late, she's she's not going to be too young. It, there's no word of where the mum's got to either. So perhaps she's been looking after her dad, and that's why she's not required elsewhere. I kind of got the impression, rather than looking after him, because I found him incredibly irritating <laughs> i got the impression that she was trapped by him potentially yes because because he's completely seems to be completely useless like when she goes away on the boat he doesn't eat anything because he's so <laughs> worried about her and then when they try to walk anywhere he collapses or capsizes is what he calls it and he, he doesn't seem to be kind of with it at all yes. and i wondered if she's sort of 
stuck looking after him because her brother is off at the front fighting in the war. Kind of get that impression. Well, he says he said he didn't eat anything while she was away because <laughs> he was so anxious, but he was stuffing himself with fruit and biscuits till she came back. Yeah, he's had about four lunches while she's away and then she's away, he's away to have another one. <laughs> Well, when he has his nap in the hotel, I wouldn't be surprised he didn't have a snack then as well. <laughs> I'm sure he did. But I suspect he's a man that couldn't actually make a sandwich himself. No, <laughs> he certainly comes over that way. I would agree. The, this is an interesting thing. I did Well, I'm saying it's interesting, so we'll, we'll see how we go. I found the war references a bit strange because... It it kind of it's all about how she wants to do something for her country and uh, this Raymond Carroll chap might be a spy, but her father, who is terribly flippant about everything, is kind of flippant about the war. Um, he complains that a woman in the hotel was talking about her her son fighting at the front. He has absolutely no interest in the story, and he doesn't care what this kid's favorite recipe for scones was or something like that. Um, and then when he when he splashes the cash and he gives Stella thirty shillings to go and enjoy herself, he says, "Buy Bertie some impossible socks." Uh, I don't know what impossible socks are, but they sound entertaining. <laughs> and and something else, I can't quite remember what. It was a tin of tins of potatoes, wasn't it? Yes, tins of potatoes. And then in the same breath, he said, "It's a blessing he hasn't his poor father's liver." <laughs> so like you're talking about a someone out of the front fighting a war and he's still feeling sorry for himself yes it's a very escapist view of war it's, it's like it's making reference to it but without actually getting too involved in really what's going on mm. um i mean the rest of the magazine at this point first world war um you see adverts for sending things out to the front to loved ones or how to get in contact with people or you know how to knit comforts and send them out and things like that all through the friends so it's elsewhere in the friend but maybe they don't want to get too heavy-handed in the story and it's it's a it's kind of light touch on what's going on at the front but hey we've got a hero here who makes a fantastic um future husband apparently apparently whether you want him or not yeah (laughs) there's a little bit in it where he it's um the dad kind of makes a remark in passing about this woman's story and the son being saved by some sort of cocoa tin. Well, there's a similar thing that happens with the friend in that somebody got saved by a people's friend tea caddy from some disastrous outcome. Oh, it was somebody being chased. I, I remember this story. It's somebody being chased by a, a rhino or a elephant or something in africa and they trip over oh yeah that's it in the congo isn't it yeah it's something like that and they, they trip over a tin and you know at that point they're, they're able to be saved um and then they go back later on to find out what it was they tripped over and it's a, a tea a people's friend tea caddy <laughs> that's right i'm just wondering if the writer isn't sort of making a little dig at something like that oh i don't think that would have been po- i think i don't think that was published though that story was published till well after 1917 oh, no, i think it's I, th- I think that's maybe uh, 30s or 40s even and might even be a bit later thinking about it um the other thought was, was like why would a spy be up in oban or connell ferry or wherever it is and uh, it's a sea lock admittedly so it is somewhere you might see navy coming in and that's why be drawing but i still thought it's a bit of a, a weird place for a spy to be living for a month but you never know where they might be. <laughs> They're everywhere, David. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hiding out, blending into the surroundings, lulling you into a false sense of security. Yeah, you just can't tr- you can't trust them. 
I'm looking out my window here, frightened that there's somebody in a ghillie suit crawling around in the wood. <laughs> <laughs> the angle of him being an artist got me interested because DC Thompson has history in this area. Uh, there was a war artist called Joseph Gray who worked for the Courier and who served in the Black Watch. And there was also um, Scotland's forgotten war poet who was called Joseph Lee, who also served in the same regiment and who had poetry published in the People's Journal. Uh, so that that kind of connection interested me. And I wondered if the writer was doing that as kind of a reference, like some of the things we're talking about here, sort of sly references to things that would come up in The Friend. Yeah, they were known as the fighter writers. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly Joseph Lee and um, uh, Gray, who you mentioned, um, were both published and w w were ex-staffers, I think, of uh, DC Thompson, or were staff who went to war um, and were being published all the way through, um, mainly in the journal, bits of the courier, um, very much giving a human side to the war of what it's like to be at the front because all you were getting in the newspapers at that time was predominantly press releases from the government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, censorship was really kind of quite high up. And it was through people like that you started to get a sense of what was really happening at the front. Um, Margaret Douglas is Scottish, so she knows her turf. I did do a little bit of digging around on her. Um, she actually wrote for The Friend up until about 1930. I can't find any reference for her after 1930. Um, and this is must be one of her earliest stories because her first serial story is published in 1918 and this is published in 1917. And she, like um, people of her contemporaries, like uh, Agnes Mitchell, who's a, a, another great contributor to The Friend, came onto the books through winning a, um, a writing competition for The People's Friend. Oh, really? So I don't know if this is one of her really kind of first stories. I've not been able to kind of spend the time to go looking back and see whether there's anything early, but it's certainly early in her career. So she's still got another, you know, 12, 13 years of writing for The Friend um, for the for what I've been able to find of her. But I couldn't find any other reference to her um, of having worked for other people. Like many of the people who contributed to The Friends were writing for other magazines as well. Um, she seems to be a, a friend stalwart for a period of about 12 years. And she's been published next to Annie S. Swan in her Christmas numbers. Ooh. And she's getting, um, she's being advertised in um, other uh, DC Thompson and John Leng newspapers um, that come out of Dundee. So, you know, she's, she's getting some notoriety. So she's obviously popular or becomes popular on the back of these kind of very, this very early story. I can see why, because she's got great sense of humour. And Ian, I think you found her competition winning entry, didn't you? Because I saw the story that you put on the website last year, which is called A Spray of Rosebuds. Oh, yes. I actually didn't make that connection, actually, but I, I put that story up there. That was in our fiction newsletter. That's right. And it's that was published, you say, on April 24, 1916, which must be the earliest one because it's the competition-winning one that she did. Yeah, so therefore she's probably been commissioned on the back of that to write some more stories. And this is very topical, um, very romantic, very Scottish in some ways, albeit maybe poking some fun at the English. I don't know. Well, it's a similar thing with the competition winning story because readers can go to the, the website, obviously, and have a, a read of that because it's it's there in its entirety. And it's similar to this one because it has that lovely sense of humour running through it. So I can see why she became popular with the readers because she's got that lovely lightness of touch, the little jokes that are going on 
along with this story where quite a lot happens. The writing style. Now, when Judy and I were recording this, I described it as it's as though that she's swallowed a book of adverbs. Yeah. Um, because no one can say, can just say anything. They, they have to say something uh, quietly, angrily, uh, enthusiastically, etc. Ungrammatically. Ungra- <laughs> ungrammatically is my favourite. Now, I've, I'm in the middle of complaining that, that she does this too much. And then that one right at the end where he says, you see, explain the hero ungrammatically, that's me. That's excellent. I love the ungrammatically. That's my favourite. The other thing that I really liked that she did was playing with the Scottish burr that um, when um, Stella overhears them outside, overhears them outside the um, the hotel, says, you're a bally fool, Carl. And I can't do it because I'm not Scottish. <laughs> but the way that the R rolls, it's like the Carl and the Carol. Yeah. It took me an ages to be like, who's Carl? I had to go back <laughs> yes. and think about it. And it's like, ah. Which also made her think he was a German spy. Oh, I hadn't picked up on that. <laughs> I thought she got that just because of the, uh, the the iron cross that fell out of his pocket. Oh, but she's adding adding bits of evidence as she goes, <laughs> and sort of adding two and two and making five. I, she's not quite Poirot, is she? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't think Poirot is around at this point. I think he's still another three or four years before he's first published. That's true, yes. He's currently in Belgium at this time. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy the reference as well to the, the speaking tube in the car. Yes! Oh, yes. That was amazing. That was was very darling buds of me. It it seems, I mean, I don't know uh, how much Raymond Carroll, the artist, might have made before he he joined the army, but would people just have had these cars rolling around? I guess if you're staying in a hotel in Oban for a month, you probably would have. I kind of got the impression it was the other guy's car because he was driving it. But, But if it's got a speaking tube, that suggests to me that you've got a chauffeur passenger relationship. Um, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure whether Dalrymple's just a friend or whether he's a manservant or, you know, what the relationship was there, gentleman companion. Well, if he's calling him a ballet fool, I suspect he's not his servant. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get your books for that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what what do we think? The, I think the question we should probably end on then is how do we think the relationship goes? <laughs> <laughs> Well, she seemed very taken with him, didn't she, in the first instance? So let's assume they lived happily ever after, shall we? Everyone lives happily ever after, even even our misanthropic father. <laughs> well, he's probably living in the outhouse in a, you know, he's in the, what was formerly the artist's studio or the garage or something like that, <laughs> uh, the granny annex. <laughs> he's got a granny flat, yep. <laughs> yeah. It's a people's friend story. Of course they lived happily ever after. Yeah. I don't, well, I just hope that he, he gets to find out a bit more about her yeah. and what she likes rather than just drawing her from a distance. Yes, that would be good. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to be like the first, was it the first episode of this series and the artist muse? Um, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. that, that, was, that had a, a steely reception from the People's Friend listeners for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was episode two, actually, because I think we did... Was it? I can't remember. It was early on. We did an American adventure first. That's right. Which, in tone, was very much like this story, actually. <laughs> and on that note, it just remains for me to say thank you to Judy for her story reading, and thank you to David and Marion for joining us to have a chat about it. 
and to thank everyone at home for listening as well. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend